This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Today we're going to be looking at a very difficult diagnosis, and that's cerebral venous thrombosis. There are many reasons why we miss this disease, and many patients can present multiple times to the ED before a formal diagnosis is made. Cerebral venous thrombosis is an uncommon neurologic emergency that can lead to stroke, seizures, and even death. It's defined by thrombosis of the intracranial veins and dural sinuses, and it has an estimated annual incidence of about 0.3 to 1.5 cases per 100,000 person years, and it accounts for about 1% of all strokes worldwide. Before we get into the history, exam, and diagnosis, we need to look a little bit at the pathophysiology. The cerebral veins drain the capillary network that supplies the brain with blood. The dural sinuses also drain CSF via the arachnoid granulations and return the CSF back into circulation through the bloodstream. Any obstruction within this drainage system leads to increased venous pressure and reduced capillary perfusion pressure. This results in ischemia, edema, and elevated ICP with even hemorrhagic infarction. There are two types of edema resulting from CBT, and that's basogenic and cytotoxic edema. There's a strong female predominance to CVT. Over two-thirds of patients are female, most commonly under the age of 40. The mean age of diagnosis is 33 years. In fact, less than 10% of cases occur in those over the age of 60. Risk factors are very important in this disease. About 85% of patients with CVT have at least one identifiable risk factor for thrombosis. This can include things like OCP use, pregnancy or peripartum status, especially within those first six weeks after giving birth, obesity, and inflammatory states. When it comes to inflammatory states, you need to think about things like vasculitis, connective tissue disorders, sickle cell disease, head trauma, dehydration, infections, and even recent neurosurgery. Malignancy may be associated with CVT in about 5% of cases, but it's definitely more prevalent in those over age 55, as it's present in about 25% of cases. Other things in your history that you need to look for include steroid use, factor V Leiden disease, and protein C deficiency. Another big issue with CBT is that patients present along a clinical spectrum based on several factors. First, the location of the thrombus, second, severity of the ICP elevation, and finally, the presence of edema. All of these make diagnosis very difficult. Headache is by far the most common presenting complaint of CVT, occurring in up to 95% of patients. Patients can also present with focal neurologic deficits, seizures, and even altered mental status or encephalopathy. Up to 25% of cases will only present as an isolated headache. But unlike subarachnoid hemorrhage, the headache in CVT tends to be more subacute rather than sudden onset. In fact, over half of patients present with a subacute or chronic headache, with symptoms progressing for four days to even greater than two weeks. Around 40% will present acutely. Now, obviously, you need to think about other causes of patients with headache, including things like meningitis, subarachnoid hemorrhage, acute angle closure glaucoma, cervical vessel disease, temporal arteritis, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, preeclampsia, eclampsia, RCVS, and even press. The headache can be worsened with maneuvers that increase ICP, which is suggestive of CVT. But keep in mind this is a very nonspecific finding, and it's common in other disease states. The location of the headache is variable given the various locations of the venous sinuses, 
and it's pretty controversial whether the location of thrombus results in pain over that thrombus site. Focal neurologic deficits, including things like cranial nerve palsies and visual field deficits, occur in 31 to 68% of cases of CVT. There may even be aphasia and other focal cortical functions like weakness presenting in up to 16% of cases. Papilledema is very common, occurring in up to 60% of patients with CVT, and cranial nerve 6 palsy may also be present. The next issue are seizures. These can occur in anywhere between 23 to 44% of cases, and this is much higher than in those patients with arterial ischemic stroke, where seizures occur in 2 to 9% of cases. In severe cases with significant cortical involvement and increased ICP, the patient can present with altered mental status or encephalopathy, which might be present in 20% of cases. So a variety of different situations and patient presentations that can make this diagnosis difficult. When should you really think about investigating for CVT? Well, the first one is a patient with headache who presents with papilledema, oculomotor nerve palsy, vision impairment, hemisensory loss, or hemiplegia. The next one is a patient with a history of headache preceding a seizure or a stroke, or a headache preceding altered mental status. The next one is a stroke in a young female patient or a patient without your classic atherosclerotic risk factors. Also think about CVT in a patient with acute stroke who develops a seizure, or a patient with stroke and neuroimaging that shows infarcts in multiple vascular territories. The final one is a patient who presents with headache and risk factors for thrombosis in the setting of a neurologic deficit, stroke, or a seizure. Let's talk a little bit about lab testing. Unfortunately, this can't be used to rule in or rule out CBT. D-dimer is often elevated in patients with CBT, but the literature suggests a sensitivity ranging between 82 to 94%. The sensitivity is highest in patients with acute and extensive disease, but it's lower in patients with subacute or more focal thrombus. A review by the European Stroke Organization found that D-dimer was more likely to be falsely negative in patients who presented with headache alone, and like we talked about, again with that poor sensitivity, you can't use a negative D-dimer at this point to rule out the disease. There is a recent prospective multicenter study that proposed a predictive clinical score for diagnosis of CVT. Low risk is 0 to 2 points, moderate is 3 to 5, and high risk is 6 or greater. The score does include D-dimer, but it's not a mandatory part of the score. However, if you've obtained a D-dimer, a level over 500 micrograms per liter is worth 3 points. In this study, the best CVT prediction model resulted from a CVT clinical score of 6 or greater and a D-dimer over 500 micrograms per liter. This gave a sensitivity of 83% and a specificity of 87%. While this is promising, I really think we need further validation and it's not ready for prime time. Lumbar puncture findings are also nonspecific in patients with CVT, and really they're not definitively indicated for all patients with suspected CVT. You might find increased opening pressure, pleocytosis, and even elevated RBCs. However, one study found that LP was normal in up to 44% of patients with confirmed CVT. And this study also found that performance in LP didn't affect the prognosis of patients with CVT. Our major diagnostic modality is imaging. The most common initial imaging modality that we obtain in the ED in patients with a suspected neurologic condition is a non-contrast head CT. This does play an important role in evaluating for other dangerous conditions like intracranial hemorrhage. But the problem with a non-contrast head CT is that it's poorly sensitive for CVT, 
and it can be normal in 30 to 60% of patients. You might find things like the dense triangle sign or the cord sign. The cord sign is an area of increased attenuation in a dural sinus or vein. If a head CT does reveal parenchymal abnormalities or infarctions in multiple arterial distributions, you should think about CVT. However, the majority of non-contrast head CTs will be normal or have nonspecific signs. Head CT with IV contrast may reveal the empty delta sign, which is consistent with the diagnosis of CVT, but it's only present in about 30% of cases. The go-to imaging test is something in venous phase, and this could be a CT or MR with venous phase imaging. CT venography, sensitivity, and specificity approximate 95% for diagnosis, and this is readily available in most EDs. MRI without venous phase imaging is really dependent on the age of thrombus, and it can't be used to rule out the disease. CT venogram and MR venogram have similar test characteristics when it comes to sensitivity and specificity, but MR venogram might be more effective for diagnosis in patients with evidence of deep vein involvement, especially those with altered mental status. Let's get to management. The overall goals of treatment in CBT are to treat the sequelae of CBT, prevent any propagation of the clot, recanalize the occluded vessel, and prevent thrombosis elsewhere in the body. Like we talked about, important sequelae of CBT include seizures and increased ICP. Seizures are an independent prognostic risk factor for mortality. Any patient who's actively seizing should be treated with benzodiazepines. However, if the patient is not seizing, you don't need to provide seizure prophylaxis. Elevated ICP can be a devastating consequence. In fact, a major cause of death from CBT is transcentorial herniation. Unfortunately, there's not much evidence to guide treatment of increased ICP in the setting of CBT. You can consider therapeutic LP, but there's really no randomized studies demonstrating a therapeutic benefit in CBT. Steroids have also not been shown to be beneficial. However, they might be helpful in patients with an underlying inflammatory disorder like lupus. If the patient demonstrates signs of elevated ICP, elevate the head of the bed and provide hypertonic saline or mannitol to lower ICP. If you think the patient is herniating, then you'll also want to hyperventilate the patient. There are several case series showing that decompressive craniotomy can be life-saving, but again, there are little data to guide patient selection. The mainstay of therapy in the ED is anticoagulation with either low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin. This recanalizes the occluded vein, prevents propagation of the thrombus, and treats the underlying prothrombotic state. Intracerebral hemorrhage is not a contraindication to starting anticoagulation. A Cochrane review of patients with CBT found that 25 to 49% of patients had intracerebral hemorrhage prior to starting anticoagulation, but no patients who were started on anticoagulation developed new intracerebral hemorrhage. Low molecular weight heparin might be more effective than unfractionated heparin unless the patient is clinically unstable or invasive intervention is planned. One study of 66 patients found low molecular weight heparin reduced mortality as well as increasing the likelihood of complete recovery. Warfarin and direct oral anticoagulants or DOEX can be used for long-term anticoagulation in CBT, but leave this to your specialists. The duration of anticoagulation also requires consideration of the underlying thrombotic risk factors and again should be made in conjunction with a specialist in neurology or hematology. Most guidelines recommend a period of 3 to 12 months. There are two other therapies that have been evaluated for use in CBT, 
and these include systemic thrombolysis and endovascular therapy. Current guidelines do not recommend systemic thrombolysis. A systematic review found a risk of serious bleeding of 11.5% and a risk of death of over 7% with systemic thrombolysis. The role of endovascular therapy unfortunately is complicated by mostly observational studies. With many patients in the intervention group, or those receiving endovascular therapy, more critically ill. However, there is a recent RCT looking at endovascular therapy. This RCT found no difference in mortality or a modified Rankin score when compared with standard of care with anticoagulation. In this study, over 80% of patients in both groups had a modified Rankin score of 0 to 2 at discharge. However, there might be a subset of patients with CVT who might benefit from endovascular therapy, and you need to make this decision in conjunction with neurology, neurosurgery, and interventional radiology. While overall the prognosis for CVT is favorable, there are potentially devastating consequences to the disease. Clinically stable patients should be admitted for initiation of anticoagulation with neurology and hematology consultation. Patients with evidence of neurologic deterioration or those requiring a neurosurgical or IR procedure should be admitted to an ICU setting. Mortality approximates 5%, and there's a risk of permanent disability that reaches 20%. The most important factors associated with poor prognosis include malignancy, coma, thrombosis of the deep venous system, any change in mental status, male gender, and intracerebral hemorrhage. With appropriate therapy and the absence of these risk factors, for the most part, prognosis is favorable. That was a lot of information. Let's go with some takeaways. CBT is an uncommon cause of headache and stroke that primarily occurs in patients less than 50 years of age. Women are much more commonly affected than men, especially those between the ages of 30 to 40. Thrombus can cause increased ICP, cerebral edema, and ischemia. Patients may present with headache, seizures, vocal neurologic deficits, and altered mental status. Early recognition is important, but often very difficult because the clinical presentation can mimic many more common diseases. For imaging, obtain a CT venogram or MR venogram. Your primary treatment includes anticoagulation and treat seizures aggressively. If the patient has evidence of herniation, these patients require emergent stabilization with lowering of ICP and emergent neurosurgical consultation. Thanks again for joining us on the emdocs.net podcast. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.